Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Rodney King was looking to celebrate. It was Saturday night, March 2nd, 1991, and he'd just gotten a new job. King was a high school dropout and had spent time in prison for armed robbery. He didn't have an easy time finding work. Well, he was turning his life around. He was uh, in the union doing construction. That's Johnny Kelly, one of King's best friends. So uh, he had a good thing going. He was looking forward to that. He loved construction. Johnny Kelly didn't make it out that night. So King got together with two other friends. Freddie Helms and Bryant Allen. They watched basketball and drank malt liquor. Just another slow evening in Altadena, a quiet area north of Los Angeles. Around midnight, King decided he wanted to take his friends to a park. It was a spot where he used to hang out with his father. So he got behind the wheel of his four-door Hyundai XL. Helms sat shotgun. Allen was in the back seat. They were still buzzing off their 40s. King headed west on Interstate 210, picking up speed as he drove. Westbound 210, approaching the 118. A few minutes later, the white Hyundai caught the attention of two California Highway Patrol officers, a husband and wife team, Tim and Melanie Singer. We're up to about 65 on Foothill, approaching uh, Osborne. That's Tim calling into police dispatch. Melanie was driving their patrol car. The singers saw King driving erratically, apparently speeding. They also noted that the two passengers weren't wearing seatbelts. Uh, 9860, that's affirmative. The plate did return clear. It returns to an 88 Hyundai four-door uh, to a party out of Altadena. King didn't pull over or even slow down. He exited the freeway and the singers followed. Soon after, the highway cops were joined by cars from the Los Angeles Police Department. This was now a chase. just for info, they're trying to get a hold of an air unit now. 
A police helicopter hovered overhead. Melanie Singer clocked King's car at 115 miles an hour on the freeway in 85 when the pursuit moved to the street. The police raced after King and his friends for almost eight miles until abruptly, King's Hyundai stopped at a dark remote intersection in Lakeview Terrace, a suburb in Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley. Tim Singer ordered the men to exit the car. King's friends got out first and laid face down on the ground. King struggled to unbuckle his seatbelt, but then he got out too. There were now more than 20 officers surrounding the Hyundai, most of them white, most of them from the LAPD. But the singers had gotten there first, so they were in control of the scene. King's hands were on the roof of the Hyundai. The officers kept telling King to get on his stomach and to put his hands behind his back, but he didn't listen. King ambled over to the front of an LAPD car and got down on all fours. Melanie Singer shouted at him to show his hands. Instead, he put them on his butt and wiggled it. At this point, Melanie Singer escalated things. She pulled out her gun and ordered King, again, to lie down and show his hands. Finally, he complied. She moved in to put him in handcuffs. But as she approached King, a voice from behind her barked out a command. Get back, the voice said. We'll handle this. I order her back. I tell her we're not going to do this. This is LAPD Sergeant Stacy Kuhn talking about the arrest a year later. Melanie Singer had thought everything was under control. Kuhn disagreed, and he outranked her. Following protocol, Singer deferred to him. The LAPD was now in charge. Stacy Kuhn was a 41-year-old white man. He'd worked at LAPD for 14 years. When he took charge of the arrest, he told the other police officers at the scene to shut up. He then started yelling orders at Rodney King, who was on his stomach. I make a command decision. I command Rodney King to get down on the ground. King didn't respond. I command the officers to swarm Rodney King. At six foot three and about 225 pounds, King was much bigger than the cops. At first, he used that size to shake them off. I order the officers back, they comply. I tase him. 50,000 volts of electricity. The taser darts hit King in the back, dropping him to his knees. King tried getting to his feet and turned toward Kuhn, who fired the taser again and hit King in the chest. Rodney King groaned loudly and fell. Across the street, a plumber named George Holliday was standing on the balcony of his second-story apartment. At that moment, as King struggled to regain his balance, Holiday pressed record on his home video camera. This is Slow Burn, Season 6, The L.A. Riots. I'm your host, Joel Anderson. Over the next eight episodes, you'll hear about the moment that Los Angeles erupted into fire and chaos, and you'll learn about everything that led up to that bloody reckoning. How did one video expose a crisis in policing? How did Los Angeles respond to a justice system that didn't value Black lives? And did LA and the nation ever really deal with the roots of the unrest? This is episode one, The Tape.
George Holiday woke up to the sounds of police sirens and a helicopter. It was just before 1 a.m. He was still groggy when he rolled out of bed and looked out the window. I saw cars coming to a stop and, you know, dust in the air and stuff and uh, the big light from the helicopter shining down. And my first thought was, oh, the camera. Holiday pulled on a pair of pants and grabbed his new Sony camcorder. He'd only used it once. Camera in hand, Holiday stepped onto his balcony to get a better look. So I'm, I'm picking up the camera and lifting it up to my eyes and turning it on. And uh, it was an autofocus camera, something that I'd never had before. So the camera's trying to focus, and I'm trying to think it's not focusing. How do I turn off the autofocus so I can focus manually? But eventually it, it, it focuses on what's going on. About 90 feet away from his apartment, roughly the length of a basketball court, Holiday saw a group of four police officers. Those officers had surrounded a black man who was on his knees. The video that Holiday took that night is in black and white. The figures at the center are illuminated by the helicopter above and the surrounding police cars. Holiday's tape starts with King trying to get off the ground. He's been tased twice at this point. Suddenly, King is clubbed near the shoulder with a baton. King falls on his face. On the tape, you can see several officers standing around, watching the arrest escalate. You can also hear shouting, but it's hard to make out what's being said. For the next 10 seconds, the video is out of focus. When the camera settles, it's just King and four LAPD officers in the glow of the spotlight. King is on all fours. As he stumbles, the officers take turns beating him with batons and kicking him with their boots. It's one blow after another for the next minute, nearly one per second. King tries to shield himself, but there are too many officers, too many clubs, too many boots. George Holliday saw all of this in his camera. His wife Maria joined him on the balcony. We were asking each other, wow, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? You gotta remember that I come from a different culture. You know, growing up in Argentina, you know, I've seen a couple of uh, military coups take over the government. I've seen people uh, abducted by military personnel right in front of me. Cars pull up, guys jump out, grab somebody, throw them in the car and the car takes off and nobody asks anything, nobody says anything. The beating lasted for 81 seconds. After it was over, the officers swarmed King on the ground and put him in handcuffs. George and Maria Holiday went back inside their apartment, trying to make sense of what they had seen. They took the tape out of the camera and played it on their TV to get a better look. Rewound the tape and we watched it once and that's when more of those, you know, those kind of questions were coming to our minds. You know, what did he do? That kind of stuff. King was hogtied with cuffs around his wrist and ankles and placed under arrest. Another LAPD officer, one who hadn't participated in the beating, stepped on King's face and dragged him along the road, face down. It was clear to everyone on the scene that King would need medical attention. Here's Tim Singer of the Highway Patrol calling into dispatch. Injuries at Termination of Pursuit. That's how Singer described the beating. 
King later said he thought he might die right there, with blood leaking out all around him. His head was swollen, and his right leg was broken. In that moment, he was worried about all the blood in his mouth. He didn't want to spit and get the splatter on any of the officers. If that happened, there was no telling what they might do. King eventually passed out and woke up in an ambulance with a sheet over his head. He was later treated for injuries at L.A. County USC Medical Center, which had a jail ward. King's friends got abandoned on the side of the road. When Bryant Allen made it home, he told King's brother Paul what had happened. Following that conversation, Paul King went to LAPD's Foothill Division. He said he wanted to file a police brutality complaint on behalf of his brother. The story of that night in Lakeview Terrace could have ended here. This would have been a fairly ordinary brutality claim, a black victim accusing white cops of excessive force. The complaint almost certainly would have gone nowhere. But the story of that night wasn't over. Holiday couldn't get what he'd seen out of his head. The next afternoon, he and his wife went to a friend's wedding. And so we were telling our friends about this beating that we saw, but I didn't have the camera to show them the tape, so they weren't as impacted, that's the word. They weren't very impacted by what we were telling them because they didn't have the visual like we had seen. The next day, a Monday, the holidays tried to figure out what they had recorded. That's when we actually called from my office, the local Foothill Division, which is the, the police office that covers that area, and the, the sergeant at the front desk answered the phone, and we said, look, we live at this address, and at, you know, Sunday morning at 1, 1 o'clock, 1.30, we saw this happening, or whatever time it was. And we just wanted to find out, you know, if uh, what happened, what happened to that gentleman, and, you know, what happened that night. And she immediately said, oh, we don't give out any information, and hung up the phone. Holiday wasn't satisfied with that answer. He thought about who else might be able to help him out. So right after that, we said, why don't we call uh, the local Channel 5, which is the news that we used to watch at night, uh, 10 o'clock at night every night, and ask them, see if they know anything. Channel 5 is KTLA, one of the top-rated TV stations in Southern California. We always kind of were the, the leaders. We were often the first on the stories. Frankie Sims was the assignment manager at KTLA. Phone calls to the newsroom usually ended up at her desk. So George Holiday calls up, calls me up and says that he has this video of a man being hit by police. And I said, okay, well, why don't you bring it by and we'll take a look at it. So we were all excited. Hey, we're going to go to the news, uh, you know, Channel 5 TV station, news department. Uh, it's much better than having lunch. Frankie Sims was one of the first two people at KTLA to watch the tape. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Other stringers that had bought, brought in tape, I mean, some tapes we had used of people being arrested, but none were nearly as drastic, as visual, as horrendous, just as big as what this was. It was different. It was different than what we had ever seen before. Quickly, the news-breaking machinery of KTLA kicked into gear. The station brought in its star reporter, Stan Chambers. He's the guy that actually we liked the most, so we were totally, you know, fascinated. Chambers and a cameraman went to the Holiday's apartment that same day. The interview only took a few minutes. 
So as soon as they left, we started calling all our friends. Hey, we're going to be in the news tonight. Remember we were telling you the other day at the wedding? The holidays weren't thinking about the consequences of their video getting broadcast all over Southern California. They were just excited to be on TV. But the leaders of KTLA's newsroom, they had to think about what they had and how it might be received. Here's KTLA News Director Warren Saragino. Well, you know, we, we wanted to be very careful with this thing. And we, we just didn't want to stir the pot too much. You know, nothing's perfect, and there sure as hell was no roadmap for this kind of thing. On Monday, March 4th, 1991, George Holliday's video aired for the first time on KTLA's 10 o'clock news. Dramatic videotape obtained by Channel 5 News shows what appears to be a group of LAPD officers beating a suspect. Late last Saturday night and early Sunday morning, there was a police pursuit here in the Lakeview Terrace area. It came to an end at the 11,700 block of uh, Foothill Boulevard. George Holliday lives across the street. He had his video camera out and it recorded what happened as the suspect was being arrested. KTLA didn't know the identity of the man being beaten in George Holliday's video. An LAPD spokesman told the station that it was impossible to look at a videotape and tell precisely what the justification was. The department said the incident was under investigation and offered no further comment. Once we aired it, all hell broke loose. The phones immediately started ringing in KTLA's newsroom. Many of those calls came from local competitors. All the other stations asking, where did you get that? Who shot it? We'd never been confronted with something like this before. This was way outside the norm of, of breaking news that we, as we knew it up to that point. And George Holliday, he got hounded too. People just calling, 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 calling. And uh, to the point uh, that I eventually, eventually had to unplug the phone. Holiday went to bed, and while he was asleep, his video became national news. That night was a pretty dramatic night, as you might imagine. That's Von Morrison. In 1991, he was a supervising producer at CNN. At the time, CNN was coming into national prominence for its minute-by-minute coverage of the Gulf War. That turned the cable network into a news leader almost overnight. Morrison worked the late shift at CNN with an executive producer and an assignment desk manager. Their job was to get news reports ready for the channel's morning broadcast. KTLA was one of many stations that had arrangements to share video with CNN. Morrison saw the beating video at the same time it aired in California. The video was quite long and it was hard to watch and it was really pretty unimaginable. And I think that was our discussion was what to do with this. It was the middle of the night. So the LAPD wasn't available to provide comment. Morrison and his co-workers debated how much of Holiday's video to play on air. Concerns were there about, well, how much is gratuitous or how much would exceed the level of violence that would be appropriate for a news network and for a news program balanced against, oh my God, we need to inform the public. I mean, and, and that is where we came down. You know, just a feeling that the only way to really grasp the enormity of this was to watch it in full. CNN first aired the video at 5.30 a.m. on Tuesday, March 5th. That broadcast, it changed everything. I went to bed, and by the time I got up late that uh, afternoon, uh, you know, the news was everywhere, and the, the, the reaction was you know, just skyrocketing. You know, the story had really exploded. 
Police in Los Angeles have begun an investigation into why some of their own men severely beat a man they had just pulled over. What those doing the beating apparently did not realize is that they were being videotaped. A number of officers can be seen standing by as others hit the suspect across the legs, the kidney area, the neck, and the head. The beating went on Back in Los Angeles, George Holiday woke up and got ready to go to work. It was a little more than 48 hours after he hit record on his video camera. I opened the front door to get out of my house, and it was just a sea of reporters just all piled up against the door, going down the stairs, down into the parking lot, all waiting for me to come out. So now millions had seen what George Holiday saw from his balcony. In one sense, the video told those viewers everything they needed to know that four LAPD cops had savagely beaten and kicked an unarmed black man. But Holiday's tape also raised a lot of questions. Who was the man being beaten? Who were the cops? What happened after the camera stopped rolling? We'll be right back. KTLA's first news segment on the beating reported only what was obvious from the video and from an interview with George Holliday. The LAPD had not released an official incident report. The station couldn't tell viewers who the man on the ground was or what had happened before Holliday started recording. By the next evening, more facts had come out. The man in the video had been identified as Rodney King. Journalists at the LA Times learned of the beating the same way everyone else did. They saw the tape on TV. This video is circulating on cable news like crazy around the country, also on local news in Los Angeles. That's Hector Tobar. He was a reporter for the Metro section of the LA Times. The day after George Holiday's tape aired on KTLA, Tobar was assigned to the story. He first saw the video in the Times' newsroom, watching on the little TV that sat atop a cubicle he shared with two other reporters. You know, you're a reporter. Your first instinct is to... Be precise, as, much, as, as, as precise as you can. And so we started counting the blows, 10, 15, 20, 30. He was um, almost like a sacrificial, you know, lamb. Somebody be sent to the slaughter. Tobar was a 28-year-old Los Angeles native who'd only been at the paper for a couple of years. I handled weather stories that were big and <laughs> I once wrote a, you know we once had a his we had the mother of all traffic jams once in downtown Los Angeles because um, the subway was being built and it caused part of the freeway to collapse and that was a pretty big story um, but nothing like this Tobar started reporting from the downtown newsroom on Tuesday afternoon March the 5th he made calls to his own sources and pulled together notes from a handful of other reporters the story would run on page one the world had seen the video of Rodney King's beating. Tobar's job was to start the process of understanding what those images meant. His deadline was 5 p.m. You know, the biggest, the most important thing when you write that story is the lead. You know, how am I going to write the lead to the story? And so I started with something like the brutal beating of a black man by a group of mostly white police officers set off a national furor. Tobar was only saying what was obvious from the video. The man on the ground was black, the men hitting him were not. But he was saying it in the first sentence, putting it at the center of the paper's account. After Tobar submitted his draft, the city editor suggested a few changes. 
and he says, Hector, I, I changed your lead. And he had taken out all references to race in my lead. It was no longer the brutal beating of a black man by a group of mostly white police officers. It was, you know, a video of police officers striking a prone and apparently defenseless man and no references to race. And in fact, he he tells me, look, I, I, I cut out the black and the white from the lead. And now we have, we mentioned black, that Rodney King is black. And it's down in the 11th paragraph. Tobar's memory is a little off. It was actually in the 12th paragraph. When I look at that story as the first draft of history, I think, oh my God, we got it so wrong. <laughs> you know, we missed, we missed the essence of the story and that it's the story's place in American history. The L.A. Times story identified Rodney King as an unemployed 25-year-old married father of two. The article said that King had pleaded guilty to second-degree robbery the year before. The LAPD told the L.A. Times that the incident was under investigation. The Times didn't interview George Holliday, but the article did include quotes from three other witnesses who lived at Holliday's apartment complex. They watched the beating from their own units and told the Times King never resisted during the traffic stop. The Times' story also mentioned that a number of organizations, including the NAACP and ACLU, were calling for the suspensions of the officers. Those groups also wanted an independent investigation of the Los Angeles Police Department. For the LAPD, this kind of scrutiny was unwelcome and unusual. The LAPD officers who lived that moment were people who were going through a transition. They lived in an old Los Angeles. They lived in an, they were members of an old LAPD. And they were the first members of the LAPD to be thrust into this new reality where their actions were going to be subject to uh, more public scrutiny than ever before. Let's take a quick break. Do you have any idea at all how many times you were hit by a club? What do you remember about that aspect Several of times. It? Several times. And then stomped and kicked. On the night after the Times published its front-page story about his beating, Rodney King was finally released from the county jail. He'd spent the previous four days in custody, getting treated for his injuries. King had a fractured facial bone and a broken right ankle. And when he emerged, his face was on the front pages of newspapers around the world. Outside of the jailhouse, in a wheelchair and flanked by an attorney, King met the public for the first time. Do you remember uh, resisting at all or trying to no. striking back? No. No. Um, you wouldn't, I don't, it wouldn't strike back. I don't think no one would strike back against four, four or five guns, you know, aimed at him. King waved and smiled at the small crowd of reporters. But underneath the genial demeanor, he was in a lot of pain. His speech was slurred, and at times, he still seemed dazed. I could say after the um, first three good, good licks, with one, you know, one with that shocker and the next with um, the billy club across the face. I was scared. I was scared. I was scared for my life. 
The local district attorney's office announced that it wouldn't be filing charges against King. Instead, the criminal investigations turned toward the LAPD officers involved in the beating. That home video showing a black motorist being beaten by a white Los Angeles policeman has triggered investigations now by the FBI, the district attorney there, and the police department itself. The mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, had already come out strongly against the officers. I am as shocked and as as outraged as anyone. Bradley, L.A.'s first black mayor and a former LAPD officer himself, called for a broad investigation. He described the LAPD as having a pattern of police abuse, particularly against minorities. The mayor also vowed that justice will be meted out to those who deserve punishment. The LA Times kept digging into the case. Luckily, I had done uh, some reporting up there before and I knew some of the cops uh, uh, up in Foothill. That's Richard Serrano, the paper's LAPD beat reporter. And I had some inroads into the the police union a little bit, the protective league. Serrano was a stereotypical old-school newsman. He had high-ranking sources within the police department who considered him a fair reporter. A few days after the King beating, Serrano met with one of his LAPD sources at the source's house. We had a glass of wine or whatever, and then he said, oh, yeah, and he, he said, here's the deal. He had these boxes of documents. And some of the original police case, uh, uh, these got cops, and here were the names, here were the, who, who they are, and here's here's what they've said, their initial reports and stuff. He had them. And uh, then there's a knock on the door, and in walks Stacy Kuhn. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Stacy Kuhn was the LAPD sergeant who supervised the arrest of Rodney King. Kuhn and Serrano had never met before that day. And I had a convertible then. I had a yellow, beautiful yellow Mustang convertible. And it was parked out front. And he says, hey, there's some, there's some guys out there. He didn't say guys, so, okay? He didn't say guys. In fact, Serrano says, Kuhn used the N-word. But he said, there, there, I saw guys or two around your, around your car. I said, oh, did I leave the top down? And he said, no, no, these guys, these ends were out there doing this. Stacy Kuhn was already at the center of a national scandal. Serrano couldn't believe that he was brazen enough to just drop a racial slur. I'm a reporter, you know, and he doesn't know me, even though I said, yeah, we won't, you know, I won't, uh, this was all off the record. But he says it to me anyway. We invited Kuhn to talk to us for this series, but he hasn't gotten back to us. Surprisingly, Serrano's source handed over some of the first police reports following King's arrest. It's unclear if he was trying to get the department out in front of the story or felt that there wasn't any reason to hide the information. Regardless, the documents were full of statements that anyone who had seen the videotape would immediately know were false. They said King only suffered some minor scratches and a couple of bumps and, and that he was very you know aggressive against them and uh, they had to fight him down. And Kuhn wrote in his report that King suffered several facial cuts due to contact with asphalt of a minor nature a split inner lip, suspect oblivious to pain. In fact, a doctor later said King had suffered a dozen broken bones. Later, Serrano met secretly with another LAPD source. This meeting proved to be as fruitful as the previous one. Serrano left with a manila folder's worth of evidence, including the LAPD's internal affairs report. The documents disclosed that at least 24 officers were at the scene that night, but only four were identified as primarily responsible for the beating. And it was, uh, 
you know, four or five inches thick. It was big. It was, you know, several hundred pages. And they came back in the office, and you could we knew then that they had lied, really lied, and how they were trying to defend themselves. And, uh, they, and they couldn't break ranks. They couldn't one go against the other now. They were locked in together. On March 14th, less than two weeks after the beating, a Los Angeles County grand jury returned indictments against the four officers. Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Theodore Brasino, and Timothy Wind. All four faced charges of assault with a deadly weapon and unnecessarily beating a suspect under color of authority. Kuhn and Powell were also charged with filing a false police report. A few days later, Serrano's reporting led the front page of the LA Times. The headline read, Police documents disclose beating was downplayed. Other documents released by the LAPD also revealed the messages two of the officers had exchanged the night of the beating. Transcripts of computer messages among the policemen that night involved joking about the incident. One officer claiming, I haven't beaten anyone this bad in a long time. That quote came from a car in which officers Lawrence Powell and Timothy Wind were riding. Each has been indicted for assault. Earlier, the pair had investigated a domestic dispute involving a black couple and had reported it was right out of gorillas in the mist. A policeman from another patrol responded, ha, ha, ha. Release of the transcripts has renewed speculation the beating was racially motivated. Melanie Lomax, the first black woman to lead the civilian-only Los Angeles Police Commission, had no doubts about the motivations of the officers. Anytime you have 15 white police officers engaging in this kind of animalistic behavior against a black man, the question of race has to come up. Police Chief Daryl Gates has not... To me, then a 12-year-old black kid living 1,500 miles away in Texas, it seemed obvious that what happened to Rodney King was wrong. I would have never imagined that anyone could disagree. I was so naive, which isn't surprising. I wasn't even a teenager yet. But I was also angry. I talked to my friends and family about the case, and they were angry too. If that's how we felt in Texas, imagine how Rodney King's friends in L.A. felt. Yeah, when I first saw the video, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say what I was thinking at the time, but I thought it was screwed up. It was bad. That's Johnny Kelly, Rodney King's friend, who you heard from briefly at the beginning of this episode. Not even knowing that it was him, I was like, they beat the out this person, you know, it, it was bad. And then when you found out it was Rodney, like, what did you think about it? When I found out it was Rodney, it, it, it set me on fire. We were thinking of ways of getting back at the police. You know, that's how bad it was when I, you know, when I found out it was him. We was actually kids on a suicide mission wanted to kill police. That's how bad it was. Yeah. And a lot of people felt that the same way that grew up in the neighborhood I grew up in when they found out it was him, you know. But at, during that time, yes, it was all about revenge, about killing cops. It didn't matter who you was around, who you was talking to, everybody felt the same way. Watching that tape was a formative moment in my childhood. It has stayed with me over the past 30 years. When I've been pulled over while driving, Holiday's tape played on a loop in my mind. Nowadays, everyone carries a camera in their pocket. It feels like there's a never-ending stream of videos of police abusing civilians, usually non-white civilians. Every time I watch one, I'm reminded of being 12 years old, 
and watching Rodney King get beaten on the evening news. But that's just me. There were lots of people who saw something else when they watched George Holliday's video. They saw police officers doing what they had to do. This was how law and order was maintained in L.A. and in cities across the country. But it wasn't just law and order types who saw the Rodney King tape differently than I did. So did George Holliday himself. If the media would just show the tape and not say anything, let the people make their own decisions, their own opinions. But I think it's when, when they, they show this videotape and then they start talking, they make people lean one way or the other. And I think that's, that's where, where things are, are going wrong there. In recent years, Holiday came to distrust the news media and what he saw as the media's insistence on using his tape to stoke racial discord. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Holiday said he didn't know why people turned it into a racial issue. When I spoke to Holiday this summer, he was working as a plumber in Southern California, hoping to make enough money for a down payment on a new home. Now, I really would love to have that tape back, yes, for sure. The FBI took Holiday's tape during its own investigation 30 years ago and has held on to it ever since. Even so, Holiday felt his place in history was secure. You know, one day my son comes home from school, I don't know, it was fourth, fifth grade or something like that, uh, and he says, Dad, your name's in the history books. That was, that was surreal. As far as we can tell, our interview with George Holiday was one of the last he ever gave. He died of complications from COVID-19 in September. He was 61. I mean, you've had a lot of time to think about this. You've talked to a lot of people. What do you think people forget about this story? More, more than what did people forget about it, I think it's more what did we not learn about it. I don't think we've changed that much. There are still beatings going on out there. We're not really learning much from it, I would say. Next week on Slow Burn, a community already on edge after the King beating receives another blow almost two weeks later. They were some rude assholes, and I gotta admit it, you know, the couple times that I did go in there, I just refused to go in there again because you're not finna stereotype me and take my money. Slow Burn is a production of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You can sign up for Slate Plus to hear a bonus episode of the show this week and every week for the next two months. And in this week's bonus episode, you'll be hearing more from George Holliday, his personal background, his memories of recording the King beating, and the legacy of his videotape. Head over to slate.com slash slowburn to sign up and listen now. It's only a dollar for your first month. We couldn't make Slowburn without the support of Slate Plus. So please sign up if you can. Head over to slate.com slash slowburn. Slowburn is produced by Jason DeLeon, Ethan Brooks, Sophie Summergrad, Jasmine Ellis, and me, Joel Anderson. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. Artwork is by Jim Cook. Our theme music was composed by Don Will. Mixing by Merritt Jacob. Some of the audio you heard in this week's episode comes from Multishow. Special thanks to KUCR Radio at UC Riverside, Devin Schwartz, Stan Mizrahi, Tanya Mosley, Enrico Benjamin, Jared Holt, Alicia Montgomery, Allison Benedict, 
June Thomas, Derek John, Derek Johnson, Willa Paskin, Evan Chung, Janae Desmond Harris, Meredith Moran, Amber Smith, Bill Carey, Seth Brown, Rachel Strong, Chow Tu, Asha Saluja, and Katie Rayford. Thanks for listening.